Hello and welcome to another episode of A Need to Read. In this episode, you get to hear the conversation that I had with the brilliant Stephen Pressfield, one of the wisest men I've ever spoken to. He has written so many books, The War of Art, which is one of my favorites, Turning Pro, a recent book that I've read that has completely flipped my mindset towards work and being a professional in this creative space of podcasting and taking on the world and trying to get him to read. So he is amazing. We discuss a little bit his new book, A Man at Arms, which is out in March and April for the UK. I couldn't quite believe that I was lucky enough to get him on the podcast and the conversation did not disappoint. There are so many gems to be taken from this conversation and I'm so excited to be bringing it to you. Now, before we get into the episode, of course, a quick word from our sponsors. The sponsor of the podcast are BetterHelp. Now, BetterHelp are an online therapy company and they provide that service to millions of people around the world. They're a company that really make therapy accessible to the people. You're put in touch with a therapist within 48 hours of your first inquiry. All you have to do is click on the link in the description of this episode or head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read and that'll get you 10% off your first month. Now, I'm super proud to have these guys as a sponsor. I've been talking about therapy since the beginning of the podcast. It really has changed my life and I'm so happy that I get to put people in touch with something that can potentially change their life as well. That isn't just reading, because of course reading's brilliant, but sometimes you do just need someone else to objectively look at your life and tell you where things could be better, better questioning that you could ask yourself, better systems of living. And a therapist can really do that for you. All of their therapists are licensed and qualified to a pretty high level. And of course, one of the main benefits is not just the price, but 48 hours to be in touch with a therapist. It's not a crisis line, but you won't be able to find that unless you have some serious, serious mental illness when you're going through public services. So if you are interested in getting therapy, just head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read that's going to get you 10% off and that might just change your life now without further ado the conversation with the incredible the wise and amazing Steve. Mr. Stephen Pressfield thank you so much for agreeing to come on a need to read and and welcome well thanks Ed it's great to be here and uh, it's great to meet you yes and and yourself Stephen so obviously um you're an amazing author um before so I'll, I'll start with the compliments I've read A War of Art, Turning Pro, and of course your new novel that is, that's coming out in March, A Man at Arms. There's so many interesting stories um, from your life within A War of Art and, and Turning Pro. I, I imagine your life hasn't quite been like the novel um, that you wrote, but w- would you mind, first of all, just for people that won't have heard of you or won't know of you, um, just telling everyone a, sort of, a little bit about your story and how you got into writing. <laughs> okay, uh, I could talk for a long time about that. Um, <laughs> the one thing about my uh, writing career was it was like an overnight success that took about 30 years. Um, I spent, uh, I, uh, I started to be a writer when I was maybe 24 or something, quit a job, mm. quit a job in advertising and set out to do it. And uh, Everything went off the rails immediately from that. And um, after multiple careers in 
driving trucks and working on oil rigs and, and being uh, writing for the movies. Finally, when I was 55, I published my first novel, got my first novel published. And that was about 20 books ago. And um, so uh, it, was, it was a long, long journey through a lot of jobs and a lot of uh, no money uh, mm. before I finally kind of uh, broke through like 30 years after initially starting. That's amazing. That's, uh, that's definitely a testament to your will and grit in that sense and to, to write for about 30 years before someone sort of took a, took a bite at the bait, as it were. Yes. And the, the first novel you wrote that was Legend of Bhagavant, which was then turned into a film. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Oh. You know, at that, that was like in 1995, so 25 years ago. And, um, you know, I'd been trying to write novels for years and I, I had had a screenwriting career for about 10 years prior to that. Okay. And uh, suddenly I just sort of got this idea for a book and um, I had tried, I'd written three novels before that never got published, never came close to getting published. We're just the kind of stuff you have to put in a drawer and leave there, you know. Um, but this, this one, The Legend of Bagger Vance kind of, finally found a home really fast. And that sort of uh, uh, ended my screenwriting career and got me onto the, the book scenario where I've stayed ever since. Yeah, that's amazing. So obviously people nowadays are, are starting all these different side hustles, all these different projects. And what was it that kept you going during the period of what other people would take as, as a sign just to stop doing what they're doing. Cause I think 30 years, of course, it's longer than I've been alive to, to just stick at something. <laughs> uh, what, what would your, your tips be for people doing that? You know, I, I tried many times, Ed, to uh, find some other way other than writing. You know, I tried all, every kind of job I could possibly imagine, but I just, I would get home at the end of the day and I would just be so depressed. I couldn't take it, you know? And the only thing that sort of um, kept me sane was to keep trying to write, you know? So sort yeah. of the bottom line was I just, I, di I didn't have a plan B, you know? I tried to, but it just wouldn't work for me. And the other thing was, although 30 years sounds like a really long, long time, and it is, for like the last 10 years, I was writing professionally. I was writing for the movies. Yeah. So I was kind of learning my craft and I felt like little by little, I was getting there. Um, so, uh, but basically the, the main answer was, I just didn't have a plan B. And my, my, uh, my heart just wouldn't let me do anything else. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, there's a part in the war of art, and I think you mentioned it as well in Turning Pro, where you're like, I think it's when you were maybe 27, when you're like, I'm gonna finish this book or that's the end for me. You gave yourself no option. And you yeah. give a year. It's quite quite a decision. It's something that I I was like, do you know, what? I'm really glad that someone said that because I think a lot of people would be afraid to say something like that because suicide is such a topic that people would want to tiptoe around nowadays. But that that was your your only option. It would, yeah, quite a hefty I mean, decision case, to come to. 
I mean, it, it, where that was happening from it was that I had, I had tried to write a novel when I was 24 and, and I choked at like the last on the one yard line, you know, at the very, very end, I got 99.9% of the way through and I just blew up my life, blew up a marriage, you know, and that was before I had any clue of the concept of resistance with a capital R that I talk about in the war of art. Yeah. And I felt you know, this is getting to what you said about when I was 27 and I said, I'm going to finish this book or I'm going to kill myself. And mm -hmm. I was just like, I was so ashamed of myself in front of, and I caused so much pain to my wife, to other people in my life that, you know, this like five, six years later, when I sat down to try to do it again, I just said, I have got to finish this thing that I'm doing here mm -hmm. or I just can't stand myself, you know? So I was absolutely driven uh, to finish it, no matter what, good, bad, or otherwise. And I did finish it, and I didn't sell it, and I didn't sell the one after that either. So it was, it was not like it was a success story, except to me in my own eyes that I had at least finished something. Yeah, yeah. I think that's such an important thing because I, I had a sense of that in my life. Like I was kicked out of school I then joined the Marines didn't quite make it to being um, a fully fledged Marine because I kept getting injured I then jumped into loads of different jobs and I think that that sense of especially in your 20s of not finishing something is such a a common feeling for people and yeah it is isn't it you know and it's actually a good I mean I wouldn't want to go through it again I'm sure you wouldn't want to go through it again but it's a great motivator shame is a great motivator you know yeah. you say to yourself i just cannot fail again it's just uh, you know the alternative is just unthinkable yeah yeah definitely i think it's, it's one of the things that drives me with this podcast i think i'm the resistance is there for me with writing i have the ideas but i haven't quite gotten <laughs> from my brain on onto paper as of just yet i've actually got another one of your books um at home in the uk uh, nobody wants to read your shit and i keep telling myself that oh, i won't start until i've read that i won't start until i've read that um, <laughs> <laughs> from from that age of 27 you then went and you you did so many different jobs. And I think a lot of people in their 20s nowadays, they have an idea of what they want to do or what they would like to do, where their passions lie. How many different jobs was it in between when you were sort of 29? I think it was like picking apples um, in Washington <laughs> to, to getting in screenwriting. And, and screenwriting, is that an, a career that pays a lot of money? Or did you just sort of, you wanted just a foot in the door to practice what you're passionate about um i i really was uh after i finished my third novel that didn't sell mm -hmm. i uh i i was really uh i was deciding whether i should hang myself or shoot myself you know it was, it was a close call and mm -hmm. i sort of had the idea well why don't i give up novels and try to write for the movies yeah. you know i thought you know, that's got to be a little bit easier. You know, I can, and, uh, but it certainly was not for the money because I had no sense that I could even get work. You know, mm. I mean, it's not so easy. It's not like you just go out and get work. Um, yeah. So, and it actually took me, I don't know, maybe another five or six years before I, I got my first penny, which was a check for $3,500 for a screenplay. I just, 
that never got made. And I just started writing screenplays on spec and I wrote nine of them that never sold. And then finally, um, I don't know, this, maybe this is going into too much detail, but okay. finally I, uh, I had an agent, I had an agent through this whole time. And he said, what if I team you up with an older writer, with an established writer, and you can, you know, work with him and he'll get the work and you'll do most of the work. And I said, mm. you know, hell yeah, let me onto that. So I, so that was sort of how I at least managed to start making a little money. Yeah. Um, not a lot of money, but at least enough to get, to get paid. And it turned out to be a great situation because I had a mentor. You know, I had a partner that, mm. uh, that really had had success and that knew how to, you know, how to do it, how to make it happen. So I, I worked with him for about five years and that really helped me in terms of understanding what a story is and what, how to be a professional writer, how to do it, you know, the way that actually works. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's weird that you say that because I, I instantly think to the, the man at arms and, and to the apprentice at arms when, when uh, you say yeah. that. I hadn't even it's, thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder that was, I was going to ask if that was your motivation, but um, clearly oh, yeah, not. No, no, maybe it's maybe a subconscious that. thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's let's talk about resistance because reading the more of art for me, the I, I talk about resistance a lot on the podcast, and and I've, I've tried to point as many people towards the War of Art as I can because well, I think it's such an important book for anyone that's got any sort of passion for anything and i think the most amazing thing is you you say that everyone's an artist in in their own right well let me let me ask you ed when you when you talk about resistance on a podcast what context do you put it in i mean do you do you talk about your own experience of it or how do you what do you say when you talk about it so resistance for me because the whole point in this podcast is to encourage people to read and I think reading is one of those things that obviously once you've sat down to do it, it's super easy and you can sit there for hours and end before you realize that you've been there for hours and end. So I talk about the resistance as you're there, as you, that first thought enters your head, like, oh, I'm going to pick up that book and I'm going to read. And resistance nowadays, you obviously people fall into the trap of going on Instagram, going on Twitter, Facebook, whatever they want to go on on the internet, they want to search for a new house plant. So I talk about resistance <laughs> in a way that, uh, firstly thinking about picking up the book and going over to get it and then actually sitting down and reading because you you say that writing isn't the hard part it's a sitting down to write that is ah. the difficult bit but i'd say that it's the same for reading um for oh reading. you know i'm glad i asked you that because i had never thought of that at all i mean actually i confess i have resistance to reading too <laughs> you know it's it's and for that same reason because i know it's good for me and therefore I want to avoid it, you know? Yeah. But so my version of resistance with a capital R is to, is to write it, you know? Mm. And that was what stopped me forever. You know, it's like when you sit down to this thing, put this thing yeah. in front of you and you're facing the blank screen, you can feel this negative force radiating off that blank screen at you, just like to pick up a good book to pick up a war yeah. and peace or to pick up Thucydides or something. And so it, it is that, that negative force that comes out 
anytime we try to move from a lower level to a higher level, anytime we, we aspire to something, to write a book, to make a movie, to, to open a business, to create anything, to get fit, to go on a diet, to, to do anything like that, that will take mm -hmm. us to a higher level, this force internal of self-sabotage will kick in inevitably. And for me as a writer, like that first book that I tried to write, the reason I was doing all those jobs after that was I was just running away from writing, from trying again. And that and the reason I was running away was this resistance with a capital R. And I had no idea what it was, never had a clue. And when I finally sort of gave a name to it in my own mind and just said, there's this force out there. The playing field is not level. The playing field is slanted against me. Once I, I sort of gave it a name, then I, I could figure out a way to overcome it. You know, yeah. it didn't just defeat me right away. So I do think that uh, for reading, for writing, for anything that's going to take us to a higher level, step one is finding a way to overcome our own self-sabotage. And, and like I say in The War of Art, it's not the writing that's hard. It's the sitting down to write. Mm. Yeah, definitely. How, how do you personally overcome resistance? So let's like, say you've, you've just written this new novel from when the idea came did you still you still i imagine you still feel resistance i don't think you can ever escape it but what, yeah, it never, goes your it never goes away well you know as you know from uh from the war of art or the concept that helped me get around this was the idea of turning pro turning pro is a quote you know mm. and what i mean by that is not necessarily that you have to make money at it but that you change your mindset from thinking of yourself as an amateur to think of thinking of yourself as a professional. And an amateur has amateur habits and a professional has professional habits. You know, an amateur, let's say, let's say you're trying to write a book and you're yeah. starting from scratch. And as soon as you hit at the first adversity, whatever it may be, you run out of money, your, your girlfriend doesn't want you to do it, your father kicks you out of the house, whatever. As soon as you hit that first adversity, if you're thinking like an amateur, you'll cave. You'll just say, okay, I'm, I'm giving up, I can't do it, you know? Yeah. Or you'll back off for a period of time. But if you're thinking of, a, of yourself as a professional, you know, kind of the role model for me is Michael Jordan, a basketball player, right? I think, would Michael Jordan not go in and practice today? If he were hurt, would he let that, you know, let's say he had something with his ankle, he had something with his shoulder or whatever it was. Would he let that stop him from doing his job? Absolutely not. You know, a professional plays hurt. A professional shows up every day. A professional does his best every day. So for me, that was kind of a breakthrough to just sort of, it's really like just flipping a switch in your mind. Mm. I, I say in Turning Pro, as I know you know, because you've read it, that Turning Pro is free, but it's not easy. Yeah. You know, you don't, have to, you don't have to take a course, you don't have to pay any money, but it's hard. It's, it's the yeah. mental, a mental switch. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, uh, I, oft I often talk about this and it's nice to have my sort of, view sort of 
validated by reading your books because I, I think obviously as people, I don't think we want to be the best we can be. I think that's what scares us. And and I think mm. that difference between amateur and pro and honestly the, the impact of of just like it was a couple of hours on Audible for turning pro this week. I probably have been behaving in the most professional way I have since I've started the whole podcast. I've been uh, really? work. I've I've finally become organized, which uh-huh. is <laughs> a first ever to to be organized. I've got everything set in place for Instagram, for content for days. I've got podcasts set for the next three, four weeks. And when when that resistance is, the resistance will show up again at some point. Um, but like, I think that that difference between the pro mindset and the amateur mindset is super, super important. And I think that's obviously something that can be, it can be applied across the board, whether that's you yes. can be a professional family man, you could be a professional friend, uh, you could be a professional yes, anything yes. as long as you set your mind to it. Yes. You know, it's, uh, um, have you heard of, you know who Jocko Willink is? Yes. Yeah. Always up at four o'clock. <laughs> right. Up at four o'clock. You know, he has a book called Extreme Ownership, right? I don't know. Are you familiar with that book? I haven't read it, but I've, I've, I've heard of it. I've seen him on Jay Rogan a few times. Ah, well, it's, it's really just another way of, say, of turning pro. I mean, mm. it's kind of a Navy SEAL, U.S. Navy SEAL concept like, where like you just own whatever it, it is, the mission, right? You're given a mission to do whatever it is in the Navy SEALs and you just utterly take responsibility for it and you own it, right? If anything goes wrong, you're the one that that's, takes the blame and, you're, and you buy into that, you know? I'll stand up, I'll take the blame if anything goes wrong. And that's a really empowering attitude a very it's a real professional attitude and if it makes you feel any better ed i'm still struggling with it today you know (laughs) i still have to you know force myself to do you know the things that i know i ought to do and i can always feel that temptation to to slack off and say well i'll get to that later i get to that tomorrow i'll you know i'll just wing it and it'll work um so it's it's a it's a lifelong challenge i think to to own something and to, and to think of yourself as a professional. The other thing about it that I think is really, it's very helpful to me thinking in that way is it takes any sort of judgment, self-judgment out of it. You know, it's, it's like before you could say, well, I failed. I couldn't, you know, complete the mission. I couldn't write the book. I couldn't make the movie. That's because I'm, I'm weak or I'm lazy or I'm a bum or I have mental mm. issues or I'm neurotic or I'm a bad person. Yeah. Whereas if you just think of yourself as it's just a difference between an amateur and a pro, it takes all that other stuff away. You know, yeah. Who cares why you didn't you know, you know, complete the mission or whatever it is. The point is, think of yourself as a pro and, and do it better next time. Yeah, definitely. Do you think, because obviously you... you in your mind turned pro a long time ago do you think it's more difficult for people to turn pro nowadays or it's it's the same because there's so many distractions nowadays that maybe weren't around back then or maybe there were but in different forms no i I think you're absolutely right i think it is much harder today because not only are there so many distractions you know with instagram and facebook and social media and all that sort of stuff but there's also this idea today of instant success right mm. the the idea of of a hack 
You know, if you just come up with one thing, you know, you do a, you're Kim Kardashian, you do a sex tape and you put it on social media yeah. and all of a sudden you're famous, right? Or the yeah. whole thing of, you know, some 14 year old kid, you know, does something uh, with a skateboard or whatever. And suddenly yeah. they have 10 million followers and we're, we're all sort of, it's easy to get sucked into that kind of concept of if there's just one trick I can pull, you know, but in, you know, my whole life for whatever it's worth has been proof of the opposite of that is that yeah. it just takes endless work to, to do it. And I think that's just reality. Um, it's, but again, that attitude of delayed gratification of the long game, playing the long game and keeping working, keeping working, keeping working. That's a professional attitude. The idea of instant success is an amateur mindset. And, and an amateur mindset may work for one in a million, but for the other 999,000 of us, it's not gonna work. It's a trap. And it'll yeah. only you know, take us down a rabbit hole to nowhere. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's, um... It's, in, it's inspirational to hear that. And I'm glad that it's, you also think that it's, it's a little bit more difficult nowadays. But that instant gratification thing is, it can be applied to anything, can't it? Because I think, I, I dread for future generations because I just, it's going to be instant, instant. It's creating more yeah. mental health yeah. issues with people, depression, anxiety, yeah. because of what society spread. But what would there be any advice for, people nowadays that are in that instant gratification sort of mindset and it's it's turning them to being depressed or or anxious about the position they feel they should be in but are not what would your advice be there i mean first of all it just to acknowledge the folly of that idea you know that it's not really true the instant gratification idea it's something that has been sold to us as a bunch of bullshit by mm. advertising and by social media and stuff like that. You know, one of the things that's really interesting to me is, you know, you know who Hugh Jackman, the actor is, right? Mm, yeah. Or Justin Timberlake is another guy. And I could, you can name all kinds of people. And what's really interesting about these guys is you see them perform in certain shows and suddenly they can sing, they can dance, they can, yeah. they, they've got skills, you know, up the yin yang. And you realize these guys have been training since they were like three years old. They didn't yeah. just suddenly burst upon the scene and have a hit, you know, like Justin Timberlake was like a mouseketeer or something like that, right? Yeah. Walt Disney mouse. I'm sure if we had films of Justin Timberlake at age seven, the guy was probably tap dancing, playing the piano, singing, dancing. He could do, you know, and, uh, you know, or somebody like Tiger Woods or any great golfer, athlete or ever. By the time when they were five years old, they were great. You know, they've yeah. been working at, at whatever it is forever. And so, but yet it fools us as moviegoers or as sports watchers, because we sort of see them and we think they kind of burst out of nowhere. It's like, wow, all of a sudden they became these great things. And we don't, we don't know that they've been training for this. It's too bad that doesn't get publicity. The, yeah. the training that goes on behind the scenes. And, um, and for every one of those guys like Justin Timberlake or, or Hugh Jackman that breaks through and becomes a success, there are like 10,000 other guys and gals 
that are just as good as they were and have been working yeah. just as hard. It's it's you know it's a it's a tough racket to break through out there in the in the real world. So the, just to acknowledge that reality is a real yeah. step forward, and not living in the dream world of oh, I could write a song. I know only three chords on the guitar. I can write a song and the next thing you know, I'm going to be, you know, I'm number one on the charts. It just doesn't work yeah. that way. Yeah, definitely. So there's there's two interesting points I'd like to bring up there then. What, what's your sort of thoughts on the concept of, of talent? Is, it, is Do you feel that'll be a real thing? I know there, there are some who are dispositioned towards certain sports or crafts more than others. But when, when oh, it comes I mean, to the whole yeah. talent versus hard work. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, obviously, you know, if, if we're not six, eight, you know, we're not going to make it in the National mm. Basketball Association or something like that. Obviously, talent has a lot to do there. But in, I can tell you for myself, mm. um, nowadays, people tell me I'm this tremendously talented guy. But for 30 years, they told me I was a bum, yeah. you know, and I was a bum because I was, I was learning my craft. So I'm, I'm a believer in, in hard work overall. Obviously talent counts. Obviously you have to, if you can't sing, you're not gonna teach yourself to sing, you know? Yeah. But, um, but people can go a long, long way on hard, hard work. Yeah. And the best you... part of hard work, I think, is, is that even if you, we're talking now as though quote unquote success is the ultimate goal. But is it, you know, I don't think it is. And, no. and, and the hard work becomes a reward in its own self. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think there's, there's something about that. Something do, doing what you enjoy is such an important factor in like success. I would measure that in, in happiness or not even just happiness because obviously you, you're never going to always be happy. You, that's for you, sure yeah <laughs> you're always going to wake up some days and like god i'm a piece of shit what is the point <laughs> um, in fact i would say every day yes, every yes. day you got to work yourself out of that every day i certainly know i do i wake up in the morning and that's exactly what i'm saying to myself you know yeah and i have to sort of somehow through uh you know working out or doing something work my way through that yeah yeah definitely it's funny i have um i have some bookmarks that i i got made with a, a friend of mine called the bookmark boys she started making these bookmarks in lockdown and on there there's a picture of my face and it says read books and don't be a piece of shit <laughs> 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 i think it's an, it's an important thing and I, I always acknowledge the fact that deep down that like, we all kind of are or at least think we are um but it's just about working out of that mindset on on like a daily basis so, yeah, you know, another, here's another sort of a story about when, when I was writing The War of Art, mm -hmm. I originally had very few little personal anecdotes in there, you know, little stories about myself, very few. And I didn't want to do it because I thought, oh, it's, that's egomaniacal or whatever it was. Yeah. And then my editors and the people that were helping me out, they said, no, 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 no. We want more of those stories. And it mm -hmm. turned out that that's what people, and it turned out that Every story that's in there about me is a story of a failure. Yeah. And people love that. And I think the reason is that we all had this idea that other people are succeeding. 
Other people are getting up in the morning and they feel wonderful. They leap out of bed. You know, that's another problem with social media. You know, that it's always the photos that get posted are always, you know, you're there in Bali, like some people are, yeah. you know, hanging out on the beach <laughs> and that sort of thing. Whereas in fact, that's a totally curated, you know, bullshit image that people mm. are, nobody ever tells you the real story. So it's great when you learn that people you admire are struggling just as much as you are and have just as many self-doubts and, and, and uh, you know, deal just as much with their own resistance. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a, there's a theme nowadays where a lot of people just, I think it comes actually from a pace of low self-esteem as opposed to high esteem of themselves where they talk about how, amazing they're feeling all the time how positive they are happening they can positive think themselves out of any situation as opposed to just acknowledging the fact that you're not gonna feel like that all the time <laughs> i think a lot of people that don't not enough people see through it when people are yeah off that image of everything so perfect in my life yeah it was a I don't know if you saw this a few years ago, but you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, the actress who was in the Friday, the 13th movies. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. She did a thing a few years ago that I thought was really great where she went to a, it was a photo shoot where she was supposed to look sensational. Right. And instead she brought along her own camera guy and they photographed her as she really looked when she first got into the, before they started making her up and before they started doing all the stuff with her hair and everything like mm. that, you know, she looked like crap at the start of this thing. And by mm -hmm. the time they got her all, all dolled up, she looked sensational, but it really showed you that, you know, uh, these images that we see of people that we admire are, mm. they don't just roll out of bed looking like that or feeling like no. that. Like, the bottom line is it's a lot of hard, hard work. Yeah. And a lot of it is just illusion. Mm. Everyone's got access to it nowadays. Everyone has access to Photoshop. You can yeah. do it within an hour. Um, I wish I could be bothered, really. But uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's one of those things everyone's, everyone ha feels that they have to be a model or have to look a certain way now. And that's why I think there are, there are people on social media that come in with that refreshing attitude of, hey, this is actually just me. Um, I think that's why... I, some point my my podcast's grown relatively quickly because i'm i'm not afraid just to tell the truth because what if i didn't tell the truth i'd feel there would be a point where i could be exposed for not telling the truth uh -huh. whereas if you just tell the truth and say it how it is for you there's no worry of anyone ever saying oh ed's all this on the podcast but um i've met him in real life and he's completely different I'd rather just come as as completely myself and show up yeah it's quite it's tell me something to do that Tell me something, Ed. How did you come to evolve the Need to Read podcast? What was the impetus behind that? So about two years ago, I was working in sales and I, I started reading sales books. I read like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and like the Wolf of Wall Street book. It just some your typical like corny sales books. I was like, if I'm focusing so much on sales to make my sales better, why don't I try and make my life better through reading? So I started reading more books. And then I was telling all of my friends about this amazing thing, reading that has been there this whole time, but I've been missing out on. 
and I just got the feeling that my friends were getting a little bit fed up with it. My family uh-huh. would be trying to, uh, when I was at work, I was trying to run like um, kind of like seminars. I remember reading Atomic Habits and I asked my boss, I was like, right, I need to do a meeting on this book. Can you just give me like 15, 20 minutes? I want to tell everyone about it because it will improve everyone's lives. And like a, a few of my close friends in, in my team at work didn't bother to come. They're like, oh, why would you want to talk about books, mate? Like, I'd rather just sit here and do nothing. I was like, okay. Everyone's obviously getting bored about this. I then got pretty depressed, found a lot of comfort in books, moved to Australia, had to come back from Australia because the coronavirus came last year. Uh It's crazy. It was almost a year ago now um, that I ended up going home. And I was like, you know what? Why don't I just put this out on the internet? Because I'm doing nothing. I had no job. I just (laughs) one one job in Australia. I'd intended just Uh to work in a cafe and just chill out for a year and, and sort of, find myself regroup so i started to just chuck it out on the internet because i was like everyone's getting fed up that i know about me talking about books i was like there's <laughs> definitely there's gotta be people that are going to want to listen so i i started the podcast and it's, it's purely come from a place of passion that i just can't believe that we get to like someone like you like part of your brain is in war of art and it will take you what two and a half three hours to read maximum and that's you've had you've had a long life right like you've 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 got a lot of lived experience that people can have you as a mentor by just reading your book no one's gonna have to knock on your door and and pick your brains but they can read your book and and you're then their unofficial mentor without you even being aware of it and i just think that's beautiful that that can come from books especially from someone like i I, I didn't read I, i stopped reading maybe the fifth harry potter when i was like 11 years old and then from there until I was 23, 24, I just didn't bother. And was there, was there a particular book that made you suddenly start to want to read again? Or how did you suddenly get back into that? So I, I started reading The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Manson. And as soon as he, well, there was a book with swear words in it. I was like, oh, this is quite a, a cool book, as it were. And it's, it's like any, anything that's good becomes somewhat cliche. Um, and he, he spoke about a value-driven life and it just made me assess what my life was. And then I remember I went to Norway with my sister on holiday and she was like, oh, because we didn't get on for a while, not properly anyway. And she was like, oh, why don't we just do a Myers-Briggs personality test? So I did that and I found out I was an INFP, which basically meant there's no way in hell I should ever work in sales um, it's not, I'm not emotionally built for it. And I think that was uh-huh. definitely the truth. Uh-huh. And on there, it came up as like, oh, you should be a preacher. Um, and it didn't even cross my mind until maybe a couple months into starting the podcast that that was where it went. But it was a subtle laugh, not giving a fuck. And there was loads of other books. I just started learning about like why we sleep, um, Can't Hurt Me, David Goggins, loads of these uh-huh. different books, uh-huh. um, Sapiens, all of Yuvano Harari's work. Uh-huh. And I thought, like, this is just insane that I can I can learn this stuff, not having to remember all of it, but by just throwing a bucket full of shit at a wall and then it's <laughs> just going to stick on there and make sure I feel like it makes your brain bigger. And I've got a small head, so I need something to push on my skull <laughs> to grow that at some point. <laughs> yeah, well, that's great. I mean, reading is an amazing thing. I mean, even from, I mean, from the point of view of a writer, for me, like, say, writing The War of Art, I feel like a book is the ideal medium 
to deliver that kind of message rather than even verbally or even in person, you know, because yeah. I think a book like The War of Art, you read it and you see yourself in it in a not a good way. You, you find yourself a little bit ashamed, right? You say to yourself, oh my God, that's me. I'm doing this terrible stuff to myself. But since you're, you're reading it and it's just a private experience between you and the page in front of you, you can, you can absorb it in much better than if you had to hear it verbally or something yeah. like that. I mean, I never, I never like particularly talking about it. I'd rather much say, yeah. say to somebody here, read the book. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think because uh, if you were to stand on stage and to deliver a three hour lecture about the war of art, not only would you be knackered by the end of it, because there's a lot to get through, but it's it, it, people's and, interpretation. And it wouldn't work either. Yeah. yeah people's interpretation is what <laughs> makes a book speak to them it's because they're reading it in in their voice the the narrator in their head yeah yeah what's going through it they create their own images like yeah. let's say with your most recent novel i i will see the characters in that book different to everybody else that reads it no no one will see those characters as the exact same in terms of so for, for me the Ruth, the little girl in the book, was, I don't know she came as ratty, but have you ever seen The Ring? Yes. Uh-huh. Just imagine shrinking the, the girl from The Ring. Uh-huh. And that's what I'd imagined her as. And, and I'm sure people uh-huh. maybe be similar because of your descriptions of the character, but no one person will ever really see the characters as the same. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah it's great because you have to participate in a book. Like, it's always mm. odd when you see a movie of a book that you loved right and you go yeah. wait a minute they cast that girl you yeah. know that's not that's not her at all yeah how how did you find um going to the legend of bag of ants and we're, we're darting around between your books here but uh, the casting for that film was that your image of of the characters that you portrayed absolutely uh, absolutely Smith not. I really, and, and matt damon I really hated, it, big I hated the movie completely i hated it <laughs> i mean you're not you know, I, they always say that if you're if you sell a book to the movies, as soon as you cash the check, you have to shut up. You can't yeah. complain. You know, you cash the check, whatever. But it was just a case where, no, I didn't see the people uh, like like that at all as the characters like that at all. Um, yeah. But, you, you know, as a writer, the first thing that that they do when they buy your book is they fire you. You're gone. Yeah. You're out of the picture. It, it now becomes the director's movie any movie and yeah. that's you, you just have to accept that if you're a writer you, if you cash the check you have to shut up yeah okay that's that's really interesting um and i don't know why i hadn't thought that, that would probably be the case um i think it's because because the the names that those two have become since that time yeah it's 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 quite a feat to have had them in in something that you've written but it's interesting that you didn't see them as those characters yes yes <laughs> What what are your reading habits like? I know you said you you you've also felt resistance um, towards reading, and what what are the books that you like, old or new? What what have you been reading over the last year or so? Um, right, I'm a believer in reading things again. You know, yeah. Like right now, I'm reading uh, Ernest Hemingway's the Sun Also Rises, which I've probably read ten times. But I, I just love the book. And each time I read it, I get more out of it. Um, 
and I, I've read a, a bunch of books over and over. Um, but I also, I'm, I, I generally don't like to read fiction because, even, because I'm writing it. And because if I'm reading some, some author who has a very strong voice, it'll influence me. Yeah. You know, if they have a style and I don't, I don't want to do that. So I, I will, a lot of times what I'm reading is what is research for whatever I'm, I'm writing about. Um, yeah. I read incredibly obscure books that you've never heard about. Like I read a lot of, you know, like uh, a book of mine was about, uh, called Killing Rommel was about uh, this British commando unit during World War II in the North Africa campaign against uh, the uh, Africa Corps, the German Africa Corps. And yeah. so I wound up reading all kinds of biographies and autobiographies of guys that were in this and in yeah. the SAS and in things like that. And there were a lot of tank battles in this. So I found, I found myself reading all kinds of autobiographies of guys who had fought in tanks. And, mm. and I'm reading it as research, you know, yeah. to find out, you know, how they felt, what things looked like, what they carried, what they ate, what their language was. Um, like here's a, here's another, this is to show you, this is a really, nobody can, I don't know if you can even see this. This is called 50 Years Down the Road. And it's the history of a trucking company in North Carolina. <laughs> I'm reading, I'm dog-eared the hell out of this. Sounds and thrilling. <laughs> be, because I'm, I'm writing a book that's kind of on that subject. And yeah. so, that's, so that's what I do. And then I love anything from the ancient world. Anything yeah. at all that's like 2,500 years old. I'll, I'll yeah. read that. Yeah, I, I've, I've seen a lot of your videos on Instagram doing this warrior archetype. And thank you very much, by the way, for getting the 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 gauntlet sent sent to my home and the, my mum and dad showed me that the the warrior archetype book was also in that package so thank you for that ah, was, um, ah, great great it, this seems to be something that you're really passionate about and I, I know you could go on probably for hours about the warrior archetype but what does the warrior archetype mean to you and what's the message you're kind of trying to spread with that that's a that's a great question and uh you know we were you and I, we were talking about resistance, right? And this force of self-sabotage that uh, will destroy us as writers or artists or anybody that's trying to aspire to something. And I think that you then, and, and the idea of turning pro as a, as a way of overcoming that. But another way of looking at it is, I think the, the uh, I mean, the reason I call that book, The War of Art, is I feel like it's a war. It's a war between the writer and the blank page. And it's a war between the writer and his own self-sabotage or her own self-sabotage. And it's true of any artist at all, actor, filmmaker, photographer, you name it. I mean, podcaster, anything like it, it's a war. And, um, and you have to be a warrior in one way or another. You, you have to somehow, like the idea of turning pro is really being a, being a warrior, adopting the habits of aggressiveness, because you've always got to go into the, against the enemy, right? The enemy's yeah. trying to stop you. And the other virtues of a warrior, like patience, you know, that's yeah. another thing that an artist really has to have. You can't be defeated by something that you have to kind of, and the, and the whole thing of, that a soldier, a lot of the soldier's life is 
There's no glamour to it at all. It's digging ditches. It's digging holes in the ground. It's building walls. It's it's hiking, you know, for ten, you know, for miles. It's sleeping in the rain. It's eating shitty food. It's all of mm. that sort of of of. Uh, and the writer's life, the artist's life, is really the same way. And anybody yeah. who thinks it's glamorous is crazy. It's it's like building a brick wall, one brick at a time. Yeah. And so. I, you know, I, I never really planned to write the books that I've written about war, particularly about ancient warfare, you know, the Spartans yeah. and Alexander the Great and so on and so forth. But I just found myself drawn to those subjects. I don't know, you know, I guess it was because like, I feel that life is a war. I feel that art is a war and, yeah. and real war is a metaphor for it. Yeah. So definitely. I definitely feel like uh, anybody that's an artist is a warrior. Yeah, definitely. What what do you do then in terms of because it's it's an aggressive style of living to be a warrior? What what's your routine in terms of switching off and maintaining also a sense of calm amongst the chaos? <laughs> I mean, it's all up here. The war is up here, you know. So it isn't yeah. like I have to go out and beat anybody up or anything <laughs> like that. But what I do do is I'm I'm a gym person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I go to the gym, you know, first thing in the morning. Yeah. And the reason for that is I'm sort of rehearsing what I'm going to have to do later when I get home and try to write, you know? Okay. So, I mean, they call the gym, they call it resistance training, right? Yeah. Because you're resist, you know, you're resisting a weight, you know, the weight is resisting yeah. you. And I, and so I'm just sort of rehearsing for that, but the, but it, it, it's, it's a mind, it's a mindset and a mind game that yeah. um just just like a warrior that not every day is going to be a good day a lot of days it's just a long slog in the mud and in the rain and yeah that's the name of the game and you just have to do it yeah are there any um philosophies that you've sort of attached yourself to or philosophers through over the years uh, yeah, I mean, I sort of evolved my own, my own philosophy, mm. but um, I'm, I'm a believer that uh, life exists on two, two levels, and we live our life on two levels. And yeah. one level, the lower level, is the material world that we live on. You know, we go to the grocery store, we, you know, pay our taxes, we have a family or whatever, right? Yeah. But on the higher level, the higher level is what we're is the the art or the works that we will produce yeah. and and those works exist in potential i believe they they live inside us like an underground river and that that river is always flowing and most of us either don't believe in that river or have never even thought about it or we don't believe in ourselves that we can reach that river. But yeah. if you're an artist, you live in that river. You live in that underground, in that underground world. You don't live on the material plane. You live on that, on that other plane. And your job, my job, I feel as a, as a writer, is to go to that other level, that underground river, wherever you call it, and bring it back. You know, mm. bring it, you know, like I say that, I believe that songs exist in potential before they're written. You know, yep. you've heard so many 
songwriter say the song just popped into their head right they had to just write it down as fast as they could it was just coming to them right yeah, yeah. And it's the same thing i think as as a novel or a film or whatever and our role as as artists is to tune in to that cosmic radio station that's playing our song and that nobody else can hear but us and then to bring it back and make it and bring it to life in the real world so that's what a book is you know, yeah. I mean, if I have this thing in my mind and now now it's actually a book. Yeah, that's a hell of a thing, you know, and yeah. you can read it and other people can read it and I can read other books that somebody else has read. So yeah. that that is my philosophy. Um, yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's that's amazing. In, in terms of I think I think that's quite a, a natural sort of closing point in terms of the man at arms i will be talking about it at some point on the podcast i do a novel review every maybe six or eight weeks i'm trying to do because obviously the difficult thing about reviewing a novel is i can't dedicate a whole episode to a novel because i just ruined the novel for people but as as a right novel, yeah for for the man at arms for people obviously I'm, i'll be releasing this close to when when the book is releasing what's the general gist of of the man at arms and who do you think it's for um let's see <laughs> uh the uh the character the lead character in man at arms is, is a kind of a one-man killing machine kind of a clint eastwood type of man with no name of the ancient world not with a gun mm. but with a sword and with a spear and with a bow and something like that and he's a character who is like like a western hero like mel gibson in um the road warrior a yeah. solitary or any samurai in a samurai movie, a solitary guy who embodies the warrior concept in, in the world. And, but he's a guy who has um, exhausted that warrior archetype and wants desperately to move beyond it. He's kind of yeah. lived that life for many lifetimes and that's, and he's, and, and, and has come to kind of the end of it. And, this character of Telamon, I've it's been in three of my other books, but always as a minor character. And I've always wanted to make a book just about him and to kind of follow his story and find out what, wh how he will evolve. And I guess it's because my own life is sort of at that point in a, in a, in a different way. And yeah. so, so Telamon lives, it, it's like a Western. I think, I think of it as a Western. It takes place in the Sinai desert you know, a few years after the crucifixion of Jesus. And he's a former Roman legionary who, as you know, goes on this adventure. And there's a young girl that happens to be part of it. And um, I won't say too much more about the story, yeah, yeah. <laughs> except that, you know, it's about him trying to evolve beyond this sort of one man killing machine persona that he has been in for quite a while. Yeah, yeah, I think the protagonist, like development throughout the story and also the, the other characters that are sort of on the fringes that come back in. I, I, I thought it was brilliant. And obviously your, your other books. So I've, I've read the war of art. I've, I've, I've read Tony Pro. I've now read the man at arms. Warrior archetype is, is sat at home for me, someone that's looking to now, and I've also got, nobody wants to read your shit. Are there any other books <laughs> that you would suggest for me to read of, of yours for someone that is, um, I certainly would suggest that you read uh, my book, Gates of Fire. 
yeah. which is about the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. And that's, that's the book of mine uh, that has sold the most copies. You know, that's been the most popular over the years. And uh, in fact, the new one, A Man at Arms, is kind of a, a carry through from that. You know, it, that's okay. sort of the granddaddy. And this is the, uh, this, this is the, grand, the grandson of that. But yeah. I certainly would recommend that as something. But, uh, you know, we always love all of our children. So yeah. <laughs> uh, throw a dart at the wall and pick them, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll take the lot then. I'll take the lot. Um, so put, where, where can people find you and, and what's the actual date of the release of Man at Arms? Man at Arms, uh, Man at Arms comes out, I think, in about three weeks. Uh, March 2nd, whatever, three March weeks, 2nd. four weeks, something like that. And people can find me or find out about it at you know, stevenpressfield.com yeah. or www.amanatarms.com. And there's, there's all that you need to know about that bit there. Okay. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Is, is there any, um, any final like, message? I know I, I say final words as if I'm about to, to store to you, which of course I'm not, but any, any message uh -huh. for the people listening? Um, just sort of what I said before that uh, I, I do believe that we all we all have a destiny we all have a calling you know it took me 30 years to find mine but uh, um, I would say never fear that everybody has got that underground river flowing in them and if you can find that river which is the thing you love the thing that is your calling that you were put on this earth to do and the other thing I would say is to young people is not to put too much pressure on yourself. There's enough pressure put on by social media. You don't have to solve your life tomorrow or next year. It's a long life, you know? And yeah. we go down, like me, we go down a lot of different paths before we finally get there. But I would just say that there is that underground river flowing inside us, in all of us. And don't lose faith in it and keep, keep searching for it, keep listening for it. You can hear that gurgling underground, it's there. Amazing. Thank you. And so I much, say that Dave. to you, Ed, too. I can tell it. you're going to evolve. This podcast is just an early start for you. You're going to be evolving into in ways that you had, had never expected. I expect that you will be a writer and you'll be a really good writer someday. And uh, thank you so much. I, I wish you all the best. I can see it coming. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. Stephen was one of the best guests I've ever had and I've never felt more nervous before a podcast than I did with that one but he completely put me at ease and was just dropping bombs after bombs after bombs in terms of the knowledge so thank you to Stephen for coming on and thank you for you guys at home for listening if you want to support the podcast there's a few ways in which you can do that of course the content is always going to be free but not for me to create it so if you'd like to support the podcast you can head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash need to read that way you can contribute towards books and equipment and travel for recording for when i'm back in the uk if you have any suggestions of books put them in the comments on the buymeacoffee.com and I'm more than willing to have a look at that there. Also, of course, BetterHelp sponsor the podcast. That is betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read. And you know what that'll do for you. Get you in touch with a therapist in 48 hours. And even if you don't like that therapist that you're put in touch with, you can change them free of charge. So I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. 
I'm looking forward to bringing more guests like Stephen to the show, but this one's going to be hard to top. So that is it from me for today. Thanks so much for listening. You're all legends. I hope you're all well. Take care. Love you. Bye.